How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways of Zion. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before the God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Father, we read this great hymn by the sons of Korah who expressed such an earnest desire to worship you at the temple there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And yet how much greater opportunity have we today as members and recipients of the new covenant that you have made us literal living stones in a living temple, that we are the temple of the living God. And we thank you that because of that, that we are able to worship you in spirit and in truth. But with these men who pen this psalm, we pray with them that our heart might bleed and desire to stand in your presence, to worship you, that it is far better to stand an hour in your courts than a thousand years with the world. And so this morning we bow in humility and in worship. We thank you for your word, which is above your name. You have given it to us as a light to our path. You have given it to us to sanctify our souls. And so with the psalmist, we tremble at your word. We come with a sense of great dependence for the Spirit of God who gave these very words for him to teach us and to help us. So help me, the Father, this morning. Come and fill me and empower me and use me that the Lord Jesus, who died for me, might be glorified. And I ask it in his name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 5. James is one of the general epistles in the New Testament. Before I read our passage of Scripture, I'd like to ask and answer a very important question. Does prayer and oil produce healing? Does prayer and oil produce healing? Many a believer, desperate to get well, have called for the elders of the church, or they've gone to some faith healer, and they were anointed with oil, they were prayed over, and then they left unhealed. And they ask themselves, did I not have enough faith? And sometimes a Christian who is afflicted with some serious physical ailment will ask a brother or sister in Christ, and they'll say, do you think God would heal me if I went to the elders of the church and they prayed over me and anointed me with oil? Sometimes they'll say, well, yes, if you have enough faith. And so knowing that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, they, they load up on Scripture. They go with all the unction and power, holding on to the promises as they understand them. But they're not healed. And they say, what happened? What went wrong? Sadly, many of God's people are disillusioned when this happens to them because God's Word has been misrepresented. 
On television, we have these so-called ministers with the gift of healing, as they claim. And they will have these meetings that are sprinkled with testimonies of people who've been healed. Of course, Benny Hinn is one of the most famous, and of course, his nephew, who worked for him for years, bilking people across the nation, later found Christ as his Savior and revealed the whole scam that he and so many faith healers have propagated upon God's people. Some even sell anointed prayer cloths, like the apostles, where even if a a cloth from their body was touched, supernatural healing would take place. And many of God's people honestly ask today, is this for real? Should I go to the elders or should I go to my doctor? What should I do? And of course, Roman Catholics also use the verses that we're going to examine today. They say that this is representative of their sacrament known as extreme unction, that in the final moments of life, a priest can come and anoint you and pray over you, that you might not be responsible for any mortal sin, either spend less time or bypass purgatory altogether. These verses are also used by local churches who think that this is the biblical justification for having healing meetings. And so some once a week, some once a month, will host a healing meeting where people can come to the altar and they can be anointed with oil and prayed over. Now remember, any text without a context is a pretext. And when you ignore the context, you can easily misinterpret the passage of Scripture. And so before I read our passage, let me set the broader context and then the immediate context. If you're new here, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the epistle of James. By now, many of you have this outline memorized. As you can see on the chart, there are three principal divisions to the book of James. Chapter 1 deals with the development of faith. Chapters 2 through 4 with the distortion of faith. In chapter 5, where we are this morning with the display of faith. In chapter 5, to bring it down to the immediate context, first we covered the first six verses where the Apostle James deals with the display of faith as it relates to your possessions, to the things that you own. Then in verses 7 through 13, he deals with the display of your faith as it relates to patience. And then in this final section, he will deal with the display of faith as it relates to prayer. And by the way, these three sections are by no means unrelated to one another. Having described our possessions in verses 1 through 6 as it relates to the poor as they were being persecuted by the wicked rich, and then in 7 through 12, having admonished us when going through a trial to patiently endure using the example of Job, It becomes clear in these final verses as well that without prayer, it's impossible for us to go through suffering, heartache, and affliction well. Prayer is critical. And of course, when we read James, the apostle, we're not talking about a man who just read about prayer in a book, but a man who did it, a man who lived it. Eusebius, who lived in 263 A.D., wrote these words as one of the late church fathers. It says that James has, had knees as hard as a camel's. In other words, he'd spent so much time on his knees, they were calloused. So when we read about what James 
says about prayer. This is not theory. This is his practice. Now, he begins this paragraph of Scripture with a characteristic style that we've seen all the way through this epistle. He asks a rhetorical question, and then he gives some very practical advice on those who are suffering, those who are cheerful, and those who are sick. So let's read our passage. I hope you have found it by now. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, contrary to the popular message of the faith healer and the tele-evangelists of our day, the Christian life is filled with trials. James opened this epistle, consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So James doesn't write to tell us how to get out of trials. James writes to help us to know how to endure trials, and critical to that is prayer. You might think of endurance as the automobile and prayer as the gas that you put in it to make it run. So having just described the wicked rich who ripped off many of these believers, and then he begins verse 7 with the words, be patient therefore. And then he commands them again, notice in verse 8, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And then he gives still another command in verse 9. Notice, do not complain. That is, don't become a bunch of bellyaching, whining believers. Be like Job. Be patient. Don't complain. Wait upon the Lord for his justice to ultimately express itself. And then as we come to this paragraph this morning, there are three more commands, and I've built the outline around those three imperatives. If you are new, there's a note-taking outline in your bulletin. If you are online, there's a place where you can print it out if that will be of help to you. First, I want us to underscore this truth that we are to pray when we are overwhelmed. We are to pray when we are overwhelmed. Look at verse 13. Again, it begins, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Now, that's a command. That's an imperative. He's commanding us to pray. Why does he command us? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And point A there, God knows that when overwhelmed, our natural tendency very often is not to pray. It's not to pray. You say, well, when you are in a trial, you snuggle up to God. Not necessarily. Very often, Christians don't pray. Think your way through this this morning. One translation, the New Living renders this, are any of you suffering hardship? You should pray. And so the word for suffering here is someone who is in a deep form of distress or hardship. The suffering that he is describing can be used in the New Testament to describe physical suffering, mental suffering, financial suffering, spiritual suffering on a number of different levels. And James knows that our natural tendency when we are suffering is in our fallen nature to look within, 
to uh, relish in a form of self-pity. Or as verse 9 indicates, our tendency can be to complain to others or to criticize others, to blame other people for the problem that we're going through. The truth is, is that Christians, when they are in a hardship, they often talk to other people. They may come to their pastor. They may just have a conversation with themselves in their own mind. But they don't talk to God. Now, we love everything about prayer except the discipline. We love to hear testimonies about prayer and how God answered this prayer or that prayer. But one author who did an extensive survey in evangelical churches in America found that the average born-again Christian prays three to four minutes a day in comparison to the average evangelical born-again Christian who spends three to five hours a day watching television or surfing the internet. So God knows when we are overwhelmed, our natural tendency very often is not to pray. Secondly, when overwhelmed, God's solution is to pray. God's solution is to pray. Again, is any among you suffering, then he must pray. God wants to be our refuge and our strength. Now remember, the opening verse of this letter, he is writing to the diaspora. They are spread like seed. These are people who came, Jewish people, who came under the oppression of Rome, and they were scattered across the empire. So when James addresses these groups, this is not, you know, just some trite advice of something that could happen. These are people who are living in the midst of hardship and persecution. And I am convinced that many of us never end up maturing in our relationship with Christ because we never, as a way of life, go to the Lord in prayer. We talk to our friends, we talk to our husbands, we talk to our wives, we talk to our pastor, but we never get alone with God and pour out our hearts to Him. Now remember, these are not sideliners. Some of you are sideliners this morning. You didn't come to church because you're enjoying sitting in that lounger on the couch listening to Pastor Brogy. When you have the physical ability to be here, and you should be here, because COVID for the most part is over, and you do not want to forsake your assembly. Now, some of you can't be here because you have sick children, you're caring for them. I respect all of that. But these people are not sideliners. They're actively involved in the fellowship. But the question that they needed to ask, and we need to ask with them and answer, is, am I personally praying about the heartaches and the problems and the challenges that I am going through? God knows many times that when we hit one of these crises in our life, that it can seemingly paralyze us. And God doesn't want that to happen. That's why in chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, in the context of a trial, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, we use that verse all the time. I've got a big decision in life. I got to know whether to go to this school or that school to take this job or that job to move to this city or that city. And that's a legitimate application. But contextually, he's saying, when you are in the midst of a trial... Seek the living God and ask Him for wisdom as to how you should respond. And so prayer should be our first response. About 15 years ago, I taught the book of Nehemiah. I should probably teach it again. 
Actually, it was longer than 15 years ago, but nonetheless, we went through every single verse, and one of the things that we learned about Nehemiah was that he was a man of prayer. His first instinct, whenever he had a problem, was to cast and send up these programs to God. Now, he was living in plush circumstances, but he learned that the people of Israel were in deep distress. The wall was down, their protective um, wall to allow them to live in safety and to worship in safety had been removed. And so the first thing he does is he goes to the living God in prayer. And that's what God wants us to do. Today, you got a group of Christians hanging around. Someone says, we, we need to pray. What happened? Who died? You know, was there, was there an accident? You know, and it's, it's like it's not their natural response. And it needs to be. Prayer should be our first instinct. That's what God wants to develop in us. So God wants us to know that we are to pray when we are overwhelmed. But James also gives us a prescription for those who are cheerful. So Roman numeral two there on your outline is we are to sing when we are overjoyed. We are to sing when we are overjoyed. Now the Apostle James moves to the opposite extreme, from those who are suffering to those who are cheerful. Look again in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Not everyone goes through trouble and difficulty at the same time. And so you should not feel guilty because you're not experiencing the hardship that someone else is knowing. Solomon will write in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. And so James is saying, if you're joyful, let it out. And that needs to be said. He's not saying the only time you sing is when you're cheerful. But sometimes the tendency is, well, I don't really want to sing because, you know, all these other people have all these other problems. Not to mention the word cheerful here that, by the way, is found only one other place in the New Testament. It's in Acts 27. The Apostle Paul is on a ship to Rome. They get into trouble. They jettison the cargo. People are fearing for their life. And he says, I exhort you to be of good cheer. Same word that's used. And so, of course, the mature Christian, the growing Christian, will learn to sing to the Lord, not just in the midst of great cheerfulness, but also in the midst of trials. And let me just say parenthetically here, one of the reasons I think he commands us when we are cheerful to sing is because sometimes we can celebrate the world's way. And so, hey, look at what's happened. I'm so excited. And then we go out and celebrate and we listen to the world's music, or we respond the world's way instead of responding God's way. And there's something very, very powerful about music. Satan can use it for evil. God can use it for good. When, uh, when King Saul was under the oppression of demons, what did he do? He called King David, and godly music was played, and those demons could not stand it. Paul and Silas were in a situation where they were cheerful in the midst of a very difficult trial. Do you remember? They were in uh, Acts 16. It records the time they were in Philippi. They preached the gospel. They end up in jail. They are bleeding from the uh, whipping they had had. And we read in Acts 16:25. but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So praying and singing are elements of what God has called us to do in our worship. 
Singing is an expression of our inner life. And if all you do is sing the world's music, that's not good. Now, let me, while we're here, talk about music for just a moment because it's a very controversial subject in our day. It is divided churches and denominations. But let me underscore three critical biblical truths. Number one, our singing should be intelligent. Our singing should be intelligent. According to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, we're not simply to mouth words that don't mean anything to us. I believe one of the reasons for the total rejection of some of the traditional hymns is because people are illiterate theologically. We live in a day where expositional preaching is rare. Understand some of the old great hymns. Many of them were written by pastors. Sometimes they put the music to the hymn. Very often they wrote the hymn, and someone else who is gifted musically put it to music. But they represented words that were reflections of deep biblical thinking. And that's why in so many churches we've gone to these little ditties that don't have much depth to them. And we've thrown it out. Some people say, well, we only want to sing the old hymns. I go to one church on occasion, and it seems like that's all they ever sing. It has to be 17th century. Well, the Scripture also says, sing to the Lord a new song. And so new hymns, which Matt introduces us all the time, too, are important because, one, God commands it, but, two, it causes you to reflect and to think as you worship God. So first, let me say our worship, our singing needs to be intelligent. The Bible also teaches our singing needs to be from the heart. It needs to be from the heart. In Ephesians 5.19, Paul tells us it ought to come from the heart. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Listen to what Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So your lips can be moving without connecting the words of expression to the heart. And so what the Pharisees do or did, some, lost saint, uh, some saved saints do today. They sing but it's not connected to the heart. Now, some of that is just due to the fact that they're up too late the night before. Now, the Jews have it right. They understand a biblical day from going from sundown to sundown, so their Sabbath begins Friday night, and it ends Saturday evening. And I think there's something to be said for preparing your heart on Saturday evening for the Lord's Day, the day that God has called His people to worship on. We don't worship on the seventh day. We worship on the first day, the New Testament, under the New Covenant dictates. Now, there's coming a time when we'll go back to the seventh day during the millennial reign of the Messiah. But right now, God has us on the first day of the week as the Lord of the Sabbath has dictated. But we should be prepared to come. If we come here every Sunday exhausted because, you know, it's our day off and we're watching a movie or something until 1 a.m., that's not good. This is a command to sing. It's commanded. I knew a person who lost their voice box, and when they come into the service, they just mouth it. Hey, I appreciate that. You say, my voice is awful. God doesn't say... It has to be good. He says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That's a command. 
Even if you have to lip it, do it for the Lord, connect it with the heart. Now, I understand some people, you know, raise their hands or close their eyes or rock, and there's nothing wrong with those things, though the raising of hands typically is not associated with singing in Scripture. It's associated with praying, raising holy hands to the Lord. Though certainly there are some hymns that are very vertical, and someone's hands may go up. But if that's you, don't put it in the face of the guy next to you. And certainly don't do it to draw attention to yourself. But it doesn't mean if your hands are raised or your eyes are closed, you're more spiritual. I've seen it all as a pastor. Of these who do that only to find out they're living adulterous, sinful lives. Now, only God can read the heart. But you know your own heart, and your heart and your words need to be connected. So when we are cheerful, we are to sing, and our singing should be intelligent. Our singing should be from the heart. Third, our singing should be based on the Word of God. It should be based on the Word of God. It needs to be based on Scripture. Paul told the church at Coloss that with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, they are to make melody. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 5, 19. Listen to this verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see those two words I have underlined on the slide, making melody? That's the verbal form of the Greek word for psalm. And so literally it reads singing and psalming in your heart. In other words, when you are singing, you are singing truth as the Jews had the Psalms as their hymn book. They still use it as their hymn book. The five books of Psalms contained in that one big book we call the Psalms. They use it to sing hymns to the Lord. So when we worship God, if a song is not biblical, then it's really not acceptable to the Lord. That's why Matt is very careful to select the hymns that he chooses to make sure they are sound. And there have been some hymns, too, that have been produced by organizations like Hillsong and Bethel and stuff, but they've gone south. You've got all these pastors who are living immorally, not to mention the weird theology that is way off the charge of a group like Bethel and Hillsong comes together with them. Why would we want to sing any of their songs and use our CCLI license to, to help fund them? I don't want to. So we don't. So in chapter 1, he warned us about not falling into sin when we are down. But here he is warning us not to fall into sin when we are up. That we don't celebrate like the world celebrates. That we sing when we are cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Belt it out. Sure, we need to be sensitive to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but it doesn't mean we can't sing and enjoy the Lord just because we're not in the midst of a thick trial. All right, let's keep moving. We are to pray when we are overwhelmed. We are to sing when we are overjoyed. Third, we are to seek healing when we are overcome. And this is where we will spend the focus of our time this morning. We are to seek healing when we are overcome. Look now, if you will, at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Now, before we go through these next few verses, I think it would be important for us to have a theology of sickness from the rest of the Bible so we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's think for just a moment about the causes of sickness as they are underscored in Scripture. First and foremost, the cause of really, I suppose, all sickness is what we would call original sin. Theologically and biblically speaking, there are two classifications of sin, what we would call original sin and what we would call personal sin. Original sin would be the root. Personal sin would be the fruit. Original sin, what does that mean? Well, it means that we have inherited from Adam a sin nature. But we can't dump on Adam like, well, you know, he gave me this problem. Actually, I got my problem from Richard John Brogy. He got it from Charles Brogy. He got it from Frank Brogy. And all of us go back to our original parents. And the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. We sinned in and with Adam. When Adam chose to sin, we were in his loins, just like Jacob was in the loins of Abraham and he tithed and so forth. The solidarity of the human race. Now, had Adam not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and had simply eaten from the tree of life, he would have never died. There would have been zero sickness in the whole universe. Now, this is important because we have so-called Christian apologists like Tim Keller, who affirms theistic evolution and now is very fluffy and soft on what God says about homosexual sin and same-sex attraction. He said, well, it's no big deal. You can be a good Christian and believe in theistic evolution. You cannot because you're denying the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. And you're putting death and disease for centuries, millions, possibly billions of years, depending on the evolutionists, before sin entered into the world. But there was no death until sin entered into the world. When sin entered into the world, thus came sickness and all the problems. So... There is original sin, but there's also personal sin that brings sickness. If you've ever heard a pastor rightly prepare his people for the Lord's Supper about drinking judgment onto yourself, it has nothing to do with the lost man as it is mischaracterized. It has everything to do with the saved man, someone who comes to the Lord's table and participates in an unworthy fashion because there is unconfessed, unrepented sin in the heart. And so they're taking the very elements that say that I've been bought with a price, that I am not my own, I am to live a holy life, and in essence they mock it, with unconfessed sin, and they invite the discipline of God. Many examples in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Take David and Bathsheba for a moment. Second Samuel 11, most of you know it. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed. That resulted not just in his death, but the death of several other men. And then he refused to acknowledge his sin for some time. Finally, the prophet Nathan comes. It's been approximately one year before David comes clean with God. 
And in his journal in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, two Psalms that relate to his sin with Bathsheba, he describes what life was like for him. Listen to these words from Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained as with the fever heat of summer. That's the effect of guilt. Look, when your heart is filled with joy, when it's clear with the Lord, there's a certain vitality and strength. But when you're under the guilt of sin, it's like someone sucks all the power out of you. Another example, which I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11.30. Paul speaks of personal sin. And he said, for this reason, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. Some of you died prematurely, sooner than God would have had you to have died because of unconfessed, unrepented sin. Or think of this verse, 1 John 5, verse 16. He also speaks of premature physical death. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So John, of course, is not speaking of spiritual death. He's speaking here of bodily death. There are some Christians who die early because of sin in their life. So first, there is sickness that is caused by sin. Secondly, there is sickness that is caused by Satan. You might want to jot down a few verses. If you were here last time, we looked at the example of Job who in his patience persevered. But you will remember in Job 2 and verse 7, we read, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Another example of sickness caused by Satan is recorded by Dr. Luke in Luke 13 and verse 11. It's recorded, And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. There was a demonic influence that brought an infirmity on her so that a few verses later, Jesus will say, Satan has bound her for 18 long years. A similar statement is found in Acts 10 and verse 38. Jot down that verse, Acts 10, 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now, we don't see this very often in our country because we don't share yet in open Satanism, though it is beginning to grow. Even our chaplaincy in the military have to provide chaplains now for the Wiccans, the Satan worshipers. But if you go to a place like Haiti, one of the reasons I believe it's the single poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere is because it's covered over with voodoo and Satan worship. And there's all kinds of physical infirmities that pastors have to deal with because of literal demon possession. I had a friend who we went to seminary together at Dallas Seminary, and he came there from Haiti. And over lunch, he shared with me on one occasion many of the challenges that they face because of the worship of Satan. So certainly, there is some sickness that can be traced to personal sin, and there is certainly some sickness that be, can be traced directly to the devil. 
I don't think that should be your first thought. Did Satan cause this? Unless you have openly, actively, by choice, opened yourself up to the evil one. But in addition, there's other reasons for some sickness. Some sickness is for the glory of God. Do you remember the blind man that Jesus healed, a man who had been blind from birth? And his disciples asked him in John chapter 9 and verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he should be born blind? A popular teaching in Christ's day was that all sin, all sickness was related to some kind of personal sin, either your parents or your own. And so today, some people think that way. Someone's under a trial, and we think, well, I wonder what he's up to. What's going on in his life? And some Christians think that way because they're not well taught. They obviously have not read much of Scripture. Think of what God himself says to Moses in the Torah in Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God took responsibility for those things. And so in response to the disciples' question, Jesus said this, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works, not work, but the works, plural, of God might be displayed in him. Christ was going to heal him physically to authenticate, A, that he was the Messiah, but B, he was going to heal him spiritually in deference to the Pharisees, of course, who suffered from spiritual blindness. So God would somehow glorify himself through this man. But sometimes God allows sickness to accomplish a special purpose in our own life, not simply to glorify him, but to give us an increased understanding of suffering that someone we love or care to or are called to disciple our knowing. And God often does this with older, more mature Christians. Remember, he'll never give you anything that you're not able to bear. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we have some great insight. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, when you've gone through a particular trial of some sort, be it a physical infirmity or whatever it might be, you're able to relate on a different level because you've walked in that person's shoes. And so sometimes God uses sickness to increase our understanding and our sensitivity and our compassion and our ministry to other people so that the God of all comfort who comforted us can comfort someone else through us. Sometimes God does not simply want to increase our understanding. Sometimes God wants to increase the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Jot down this verse, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul testifies, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, as to precisely what this thorn in the flesh was, we do not know. Some think maybe it was his mother-in-law. 
Uh, I think that's a little hard for me to believe since we know the Apostle Paul was single his entire life. But if I were to make an educated guess, I would probably say it was his eyesight. Uh, We read in Galatians 4 and verse 15, he says, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul, on his first missionary journey, went through the Galatian region, and it was a region that history records was known for malaria. And malaria, of course, is related to eye problems. And so in the same book, he writes towards the end, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And it would certainly fit the chronology when Paul wrote Galatians and then when he writes 2 Corinthians. We're told in the next verse in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times, Lord Jesus, heal me. And three times, God said no. In fact, in verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You say, was Paul out of fellowship with God? Was he living in sin? Did he lack in faith? No, none of the above. It was a thorn in the flesh because power is perfected in weakness. It can make us more dependent on the living God. So Paul will respond most gladly, therefore. I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is telling us that in his weakness, he learned to depend more and more, not just the thorn in the flesh, but the people who insulted him, who followed him, who dogged his trail, who persecuted him. He knew through it all, he would learn to depend more even on God's power. And Job really makes a similar statement in Job 23.10. He says, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. God will use the trial to remove the dross and to empower our lives more fully. And so Job silenced the mouth of the devil. He silenced the mouths of his uh, friends and that he showed he had a pure and true love for God by the way he responded and depended on God. Now, there are some very special people listening to me today who have shut the devil's mouth who have closed the lips of an unbelieving world in the midst of your suffering. But what is James talking about? Now, that's a broad theology of suffering, but let's bring it down to our passage. Pay attention. You're going to need this. I promise you. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, several truths I want to underscore. First, the problem stated. The problem stated. James simply asks, is any among you sick? And the word here for sick found twice in verses 14 and 15, asthenao. It means to be ill, and it can be used both physically and spiritually in both realms in the New Testament. It's describing someone who's really like disabled, who's without strength. In other words, he's not talking about someone with an ingrown toenail or a toothache. He's talking about someone with a serious, serious problem. 
In addition to the problem stated, there's the procedure given, the procedure given. Let's read further into verse 14. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. Now notice first who initiates this prayer. The one who is sick calls for the elders of the church. And I find that pattern interesting because it's so foreign to what we see happening in our day. Today we have these faith healers who go around the country and they open up these auditoriums and they have these healing services. But that's not, this is not the biblical basis for a healing service. Now look, when people are sick, nobody really wants to be sick. And if, if you've got some like major problem, I mean, nobody wants that. But these bodies are getting older. And you may be 25 and you don't feel like you got a care in the world, but when you're 65, you may need some tune-ups here and there. And, you know, and things are just problemsome. But sometimes a 30-year-old can be plagued with a serious illness like MS or any number of things. No one wants to be sick. When I was in college and a relatively new believer, there was a Roman Catholic priest who I ended up meeting. And I went and I asked him the diagnostic questions. And no, he wasn't saved. But he there for the Roman Catholic Church would fill the Worcester Memorial Auditoriums and other auditoriums across New England, pack them with thousands of people because he was offering healing. And there were some healings that took place. Now, that's another sermon in itself. But no one wants to be sick. But understand, this is not some self-appointed faith healer who travels cities typically to bilk people of their monies. No, this is the individual who is sick going to the elders of the church. You say, does not everyone want to be healed? The person who is sick, I mean, doesn't everybody want to be healed? Well, not necessarily, and we need to just step back for a moment. Understand there are sick people who don't want to be healed. How do you know? Well, Jesus said so. He asked the question at the man at the pool of Bethesda. When we go to Israel, we go to the pool of Bethesda. It's a class A spot. Like, it happened right here. And he asked the question, do you wish to get well? Do you will to get well? Do you want to get well? That was no insincere question. No insincerity ever came from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Everything he said was the truth. And he knew that not everyone wanted to get well, that some people like to keep an illness. Sometimes it's an excuse to be lazy, to get others to do the work for you. It's simply an excuse for some, sadly, to remain irresponsible. Some people like the sympathy that the sickness generates. And sadly, some people cannot be healed because they cherish the sin that has created the sickness. And that, as we're going to see in just a moment, is what James is focusing on. People who cherish sin that causes the illness. Then there are those people who have prayed over and over and over again, and they've just reached a point in their life and their body is worn out. And rightly, they don't want to be healed in this life they want to be healed for the next. And I've asked people, she says, Pastor, will you just pray that the Lord would take me home? I'm ready to go home. Is any among you sick? 
then let him call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. And let me just say as an aside, if you are sick and want prayer in the hospital, there is no way either a pastor or a church member will come to pray for you unless they know you are sick. And so we get complaints from time to time. No one came to me in the hospital. Well, no one knew you were in the hospital. And really, they're telling on themselves. They're telling that they have a casual, disconnected relationship to the local assembly. They may show up here for worship and slide out. They really don't know anyone. They don't really get engaged in people's lives. And they are in violation of Hebrews 3 and Hebrews chapter 10. And it has nothing to do, by the way, with the size of the church. I've learned it has very little to do with whether a church is large or a church is small. Now, when I first came here, there were certain expectations of me to go and pray with people in the hospital. And I'd love to pray with everyone in the hospital. But that's not truly the principal job description of a pastor. Now, every Christian is called to show mercy. And I wish I could be at every hospital bed, but I cannot. And if I were to do that, and I meet pastors whose congregations are primarily older people, nothing wrong with older people. This whole movement that we just want the young people is an unbalanced, unbiblical way in which to do church because there's an assumption in the New Testament that older men, older women are teaching the next generation, that they are valued people. But if your whole congregation is old people, typically there's a sickness there because the leadership are not reaching the next generation of people. And if a pastor spends all his time on that, something's going to suffer. His preparation to feed the people from the Word of God, to share the gospel with the lost, and to baptize both of those two functions in prayer will somehow be diminished. But look, while I may not be able to pray for you at a hospital bed... If I know of it, I can go into my prayer closet and bring you before the Lord God. You say, Pastor, I've been in the hospital and I've been sick and you weren't there. You're right. And I wish I could be there for everyone. But you know, there are people in this fellowship who have the gift of mercy there are deacons who serve in that way. There are people who are engaged in adult Bible fellowships who know you are sick, and they come and they minister to you. Look, if I show up at your hospital bed, you probably wish I hadn't come because you are so sick. That's why I'm there. Are you sick? Call for the elders of the church. Now, please notice the elders. What does the term elder mean? Unlike in the Old Testament, where it can refer to a spiritual leader, the word elder is also used in the Hebrew Bible to describe an older person. In the New Testament, it's used principally of the office. And the word elder, overseer, bishop, pastor is used interchangeably to describe the same person. In other words, there's not a hierarchy in some denominations where I'm a pastor and over here there's this bishop, this super pastor who moves pastors around. Not found anywhere in the New Testament. 
In fact, in the same verse sometimes, you will see the term overseer or elder interchanged with the word bishop or pastor. Acts 20, Titus 1 are good examples. Look, in the New Testament, every church was autonomous. The only authority above the local church in the first century were the apostles. But when the apostles died off, and there are no apostles today, now you might drive by a church and it says apostle so-and-so, it's not true. He's not an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, you had to have been personally selected by the resurrected Christ, and if those things were true, you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. But with that said, today with no living apostles, every elder is under the authority of Christ and he is certainly under the authority of the word of God that the apostles gave us. But what I want you to see is that he is to call for the elders of the church, not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Why? Because in the New Testament, there was a plurality of elders that gave leadership. For instance, jot down a few of these verses out in the margin. Uh, Philippians 1.1, Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, that's another word for elders, and deacons. Or jot down this word, this verse, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Again, it assumes a plurality of elders. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Now, the old King James I noted a few weeks ago renders it a little bit differently. The new King James does it identically. It has nothing to do with manuscripts. Every manuscript reads identically. But the old King James says, Likewise, ye younger, submit unto the elder. But he's not talking about a single elder, it's plural. Why did they do that? No doubt because, remember, this is the time where people for the first time are reading the Scriptures. They have little knowledge and they're trying to communicate it so it's understandable. And in 17th century English, the word elder primarily had the connotation of an older person. But clearly in this context, he's talking about a pastor of a church. Jot down this verse, Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, talking about the Apostle Paul, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Likewise, uh, jot down this verse, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. For this reason I left you, Titus and Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city, as I directed you. Now, there are some churches that have a single elder form of government. Uh, Southern Baptists are going back to a plurality of elders. They're going back to their roots. But most say Southern Baptist churches have a single elder form of government, just one elder, and then they have a group of deacons that very often, in fairness to them, serve like elders. But understand, where do they build the case for that? Well, they would take you to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus addresses the seven churches. And if you remember, in those seven churches, there's a point man. He, in every single church, addresses the angel of the church in Laodicea or Philadelphia, the angel. Now, he's not talking about a literal angel. He's talking about a human angel. The word angel is a term, angelos, it's used to describe John the Baptist. It's used to describe angeloi in the plural, the disciples of John the Baptist. And so there's not angels in local churches who do the preaching and the teaching and the correcting. To put it in modern terminology, he is addressing the senior pastor of the church. 
And so the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders, but with that said, there is a leader amongst equals. And so typically, even a church that has, you know, several thousand people, a whole plethora of elders, you ask who the pastor is, and one name's going to come up. Because there's a point man that God gives in a local church. So, for instance, when he addresses the church at Pergamum, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you, to you singular, speaking to the angelos, the angel, the pastor. You can call me Angel Carl if you want. I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them, plural, that is the church that you are called to lead, with the sword of my mouth. So the pronoun you is not plural, it's singular. Again, this is what today we call in modern terminology the senior pastor. And Jesus is basically saying, Pastor, I'm coming to discipline your church, and I'm going to discipline them with the sword of my mouth, with the Word of God. And you either let the Word of God judge your assembly by practicing and teaching that truth, or I will judge your assembly with the Word of God. It's a very sobering thing. But understand, with that said, this is not a case to build a single elder form of church government. There's always a plurality of elders in the new church. So they are to call for the elders, not just anyone. You call for the elders of the church, and we'll see why. Notice, further, they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So first the elders pray over him, and the Greek construction is not clear in terms of the timing of the anointing. Do they anoint him before the prayer? Do they anoint him during the prayer? Do they anoint him after the prayer? If it was critical, God would have made it clear, but it's of little importance. But in either case, he calls for the elders of the church that are pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So I take it that this is a picture of the elders of a local assembly laying their hands, though the text never says they lay their hands on them. But I think that's what's in view, and I think we have biblical precedence for that in a passage like Mark 6 and verse 5. Jesus is in Nazareth, and because of the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, we read, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And so very clearly, the sick person He initiates the need for prayer. He calls the elders. They pray over him, and they anoint him with oil. Now, the word for oil is used in and outside of the Bible to refer to either olive oil or the oil of myrrh. Of greater importance would be for us to ask, what does it mean to anoint him with oil? Some people take that this is a form of medicinal fluid, and since olive Oil could be used medicinally. You remember the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, and he finds this guy who's been brutalized on the side of the road, and he, he washes his wounds, he pours wine on them, and there's a substance in wine that would kill the bacteria, and then he put oil on it that served as a Band-Aid, and they would say, well, you know, we've gone from, from oil to antibiotics to CAT scans to laser surgery. It's just more sophisticated, and so he's saying, prayer and medicine. I don't think so. Some faith healers say, hey, this is a prohibition not to use medicine. I don't think so. Nothing could be further from the truth because there are many examples within Scripture where God affirms medicine. 
And really, if you think about it, if oil is medicinal here, all medicine is is a form of substances combined together that God created to help you, just like food helps you to keep your body strong. And certainly, uh, wine is used in Scripture medicinally. They would typically mix wine with water because, again, there's a substance within alcohol, not the alcohol itself, but a substance within the alcohol that kills the bacteria and makes it safe to drink. Don't say Jesus drank wine and he was making people drunk because that's blasphemous. Oh, you know, when they've drunk freely and they don't know the difference between the cheap stuff and the good stuff, he produced good stuff. Oh, that, that's blasphemous. Don't say that of our Lord. I can't help the ignorance of our day who would call someone like me some stupid fundamentalist for saying that Christians shouldn't use strong drink. No, I would say there's a place for it. If you live in a culture where the water's bad and you can't purify it, add a little bit of wine. They did it typically in a five-to-one ratio according to a second century A.D. pastoral manual, according to an old Jewish manual, and it purified it. Or they'd pour it on a cot. And it killed the bacteria, just like, uh, or you could give it to a dying, despairing man, like in Proverbs 31. Why? It's an act of mercy, not to make him drunk, not to make a man in the hospital when you give him morphine a drug addict, but as an act of mercy. Now, with that said, I don't think that's what's in view. Prayer and medicine. Now, with that said, neither should we seek medicine to the exclusion of God. King Asa sought the physicians to the exclusion of God, and God was disappointed. King Hezekiah sought the Lord, and then God used medical means in which to heal him. So here is this situation, and God is wanting to heal an individual. But again, we'll see why. This person takes the initiative, and he comes, and God does what only God can do. You say, look, I've been healed, and I never prayed about it. I was like King Asa. I saw the doctor, never prayed about it. And that's a lot of Christians today. They go to the doctor. All they want is a prescription. Just give me the prescription. They feel like they get ripped off if they don't get a prescription. Give me something for the 50 bucks I just paid. But they don't pray about it. And they say, but I got healed. Well, so did the 10 lepers. And they didn't seek healing. That was just an expression of God's common grace. But ultimately, God is the healer. He is the one who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. So they call for the elders. They anoint him with oil. And they pray, what? In the name of the Lord. They pray and anoint him in the name of the Lord. The Lord here is a reference as throughout the New Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I always find it interesting that when these faith healers, you know, pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, they always put a little flair to it. In the name of Jesus, I heal you. You know, Jesus. And like there's something magical in that. No, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in his authority, in his power. And we are recognizing that we are submissive to his will. So I don't think this text is saying, use all the available medical means that you can and then ask the Lord to pray for them. Look, they're coming to the elders, and the elders are not medical doctors. 
They're anointing him with oil for an entirely different reason. Oil in Scripture was used to set apart a thing or a person for the service of the Lord. So, for instance, in Leviticus 8, Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them or sanctified them, the King James says. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and the stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So when you talk about oil, you're talking about consecrating something or someone. You're setting them apart for the service of the Lord. And so priests and kings were anointed with oil because the people were recognizing that the prophet of God was setting him aside for the purpose of the Lord. We see the apostles in Mark 6, and they were casting out demons and were anointing Many sick people in healing them. Why were they anointing them? Now that they were healed, they were saying, we are setting you apart for God's service. Look, why would I want to pray for someone to get well if they're rebellious and out of fellowship with God? I don't want to pray for their good health so they can serve the devil. No, I want to pray for their good health that they might serve the living God. And that's really what was taking place. So beyond the problem, the procedure, there's the prayer offered. I'm almost done. Stay with me. The prayer offered. Don't let your mind wander. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The prayer offered in faith. Now, there are these charlatans who go up and down the coast bilking, naive, biblically ignorant people of their money. And they say, I'm here to pray the prayer of faith. And of course, when the prayer of faith is not answered, it's never their fault. It's your fault. It's your unbelief that hindered the miracle that God wanted to give you. Uh, he's talking about the prayer of faith that the elders express. And they'll take a verse like Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes you are healed. And they take that magnificent passage of Scripture that speaks of the atonement of Christ 750 years before it happens. And just as through faith in what Jesus did on the cross, your sins are forgiven, they argue equally by faith in what he did on the cross, your sicknesses can be forgiven because by his stripes you are healed. He's not talking about physical healing. How do you know, Pastor? Because the New Testament gives us divine commentary on that text. Peter says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The primary focus of the atonement is not to make us healthy and wealthy. It is to make us forgiven, holy people in the sight of God Almighty. And the focus here in this immediate context, the prayer of faith, is in relation to sin that has been committed, which brings us to the promise made. Follow now. The promise made, again in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, several truths we need to take careful note of. He doesn't say he might raise him. He doesn't say, well, maybe he'll raise him up. He will raise him up, guaranteed the Lord will raise him up. 
if this passage is referring to sickness for any reason at all, like most people use it, then you would be super smart to come to the elders of the church every time you're sick, and if you think they're men of God and can offer a prayer of faith, let them anoint you and pray over you because you will be healed. That's the point of the text. Now understand, what is he referring to? If this were the case, then why did Paul have some sick co-workers in his uh, service of the Lord. We know from the book of Acts, the apostle Paul had the gift of healing, did he not? Yet who does he leave sick? And Miletus, Trophimus. Or think about Epaphroditus. Paul could have healed him, but he said he was near death. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? Or Timothy, the one he loved, his spiritual son in the faith. And he had stomach problems because he was kind of a traveling pastor, had a lot of bad water. So take a little wine for your frequent illnesses. You mix the wine with the water because it made it safe to drink. If all it took was prayer and a little dab of oil, then what was withholding these faithful servants from being healed? The key phrase is verse 15. If. He has committed any sins, plural, implying that it's not just once in this ongoing lifestyle. Now, many of you know that the word if in the Greek New Testament is different from if in English. If typically in English can mean maybe or possibly or probably. But in the New Testament, there are four if statements, four, four conditional statements that are used in Greek. Like many of you know, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. He's not questioning that he's the Son of God. He's actually using a first-class conditional Greek statement to underscore what he knew. You are the Son of God, so turn these rocks into bread. And so without going into all the Greek and all the grammar and to bore you and spend another 20 minutes, this person is sick because he's committed sins. If he has committed sins, and he has, that's the thought behind it. Again, for this reason, many of you are sick. Why? Because of sin in the life. And so here's a person who recognizes, I've got a sickness that is connected to personal sin in my life, and I am under the discipline of God Almighty. It might be some secret personal sin that no one else knows, but he and God knows, and he knows he needs to get it right. Or more likely and more probably, this is a person who has been put under church discipline by the elders. I've been your pastor for over 30 years. I think I'd be conservative to say that we've exercised church discipline at least 50 times. Now, most time, it's either me personally or me or one or two other pastors. And in the vast majority of the cases, with the exception of six, it ended on the second level. But on six cases in 30 years, it went to the third level, where we brought it before the church. And if a person then doesn't repent, he's removed from the church, he's removed from the protective umbrella of the local assembly. Now, I know the old King James says if a man has faults, and that was superb for 17th century English, but a fault doesn't really imply sin today. He's talking about a sin, a person who is sick because of sin. I pled with a man yesterday. I didn't have time to do it, but I thought I don't have time not to do it. 
This precious saint contacted me, so I contacted her back. She's a believer. Her husband's living in Florida in adultery. They've got two kids. And I always fight on the side of the kids because I know what it does to them when you tear apart two living people that God has made one. And I said to him, look, if you really know Christ like you say, and you can live in this adulterous relationship, you're going to wear out God's patience. He's long-suffering, but you are going to invite the discipline of God Almighty. If you don't experience that, it just means you've never met Christ. You've got a form of godliness without power. You're one of those folks who receive the word with joy, get baptized, believe for a while here, but not in the heart. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and then you'll fall away. But here we're dealing with someone who recognizes, I've got this sickness because I am under the discipline of God. And so James says that this person will be restored or revived is what the word means. He's speaking of a believer. Unbelievers don't experience God's discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The word revived or restored, depending on your translation, revived means you've been ived. So you're revived. You know, he's talking about a person who's already saved, who is coming to fix the problem. He's describing like the person in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know the case, the guy sleeping with his stepmother. Well, I'm going to put him out. You should have, Corinthians. I'm going to do it. And he's going to have some real problems. Of course, he repented, 2 Corinthians 2 indicates. So, the prayer offered in faith will restore, revive the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Not might be, but will. Because they recognize in faith that this person is genuinely repentant and that God wants to restore them, that this is not a sickness unto death, that God wants to restore them and their testimony. Therefore, because of the preceding statement, verse 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We'll look at that in depth next week because that's a hinge verse that connects the following verses, and the end. So contextually, the focus here, unlike our Roman Catholic friends, they have seven sacraments. God has zero sacraments. God doesn't have any sacraments. He has two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. He doesn't have any sacraments. But the sacrament of extreme unction, the priest comes, you're on your deathbed, he anoints your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth. I've got a Catholic pastoral manual in my library back there when I took courses at a Catholic seminary. And then it says, by this holy oil in his tender mercy, God forgive you of whatever you have sinned by sight, hearing, smell, and touch. And they use this verse as a basis, James 5, for this so-called sacrament. Contextually here, the focus is not on dying, it is on healing. It's not on death, it's on health. But, you know, for them, you get this blessed oil, and maybe you can even bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven. Pray over him. Anoint him with oil. You don't do that flippantly. 
Paul warns, look, I don't care if you're laying hands on a man to be a deacon or an elder or for healing because of sin. Paul says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. I mean, why should you pray for someone to have strength who's not repentant, who's only serving the evil one? So the focus is clear. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Second, God will raise him up, not the elders. The Lord will raise him up. And third, if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. You know, when Audrey and I were first married, we met a retired couple that just loved us and cared for us and wanted to encourage us, Roland and May. He was a commercial builder, built hospitals, universities, all kinds of things. In fact, he's in the philanthropic hall of fame because he gave away so much money. But he had an um, 18-year-old son went out and got drunk, was in a car accident, had a brainstem injury, and he was basically a vegetable. But Roland, hoping that maybe someday medical science would advance where the brainstem injury could be corrected, he built this magnificent nursing home at his own expense. And his son, whom we went to visit on three different occasions, had the very best care in the world. But in that process, he went from this faith healer to that faith healer. He gave tens of thousands of dollars, and no one ever asked him whether or not he even knew Christ as his personal Savior. Because no one was really concerned with that. Because they're wicked, selfish rebels who are only interested in lining their own wallets and not on the kingdom of God. Look, what's more important than a man's soul? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, even the finest of health? And in the end, he loses his soul. Three applications. We're done. First, pray when you're overwhelmed with a trial. Pray when you're overwhelmed with a trial. Right out of the text. Second, sing. Sing when you're overflowing with joy. Third, repent when you are overpowered by sin, and God promises you will be revived, guaranteed. Now, Holy Father, what a challenging passage you've given us, but we thank you that we could study it in depth today. Thank you for the attention of these brothers and sisters who are not here for a 20-minute sermon, but who are serious of growing in Christ we pray that you would help us to rightly divide the word of truth, that in our ministries, to our families and our friends and those whom you've entrusted us to disciple, that we might be faithful to use the word of God accurately. There are many, Father, I know who are listening to me, who are sick for one reason or another, some just because they are in a fallen world, some because you are developing a sense of understanding and compassion in their ministry to other people. Some, like a Johnny Erickson Tata, that you're using for your glory, that we're not seeking healing, but we are seeking you like Job of old. But maybe someone listening to me who is sick because they've brought it on themselves and they are one of yours, and for that reason, you are disciplining them. Help them to make it right 
that they might walk in holiness and be set apart once again for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.